It has been said by cynical people that every organization goes through the same life cycle. That it begins with the man, moves on to the movement, then to the machine, and finally to the monument. Or I've heard others say the mausoleum. And I think it's cynical, but it may also be true in most cases. Things begin when when one person, a man or a woman, has, has just a lot of passion and excitement, and they want to begin something, they see a need, or they see something that must be addressed, and they take it upon themselves. And then it becomes a movement as other people catch that excitement and join them. And it is no longer usually completely reliant on that first person then. It sort of takes on a life of its own. And then as it becomes more formalized, it becomes a machine. And I don't like that word so much because that sounds negative and it has positive and negative aspects to it. For example, think of someone who's just sort of selling burritos out of their, their house. You know, they go on Facebook and say, anyone want a burrito? And, and, and then they, they make a little food truck situation and then they start a restaurant and then they get a whole chain of restaurants. It, it becomes organized and there's moving parts and, and even principles and rules that happen. But then over time, if they're not careful, the machine becomes the point. It becomes the end rather than the means to the end. And at that point, when all the energy and all the resources of the organization are going into keeping the machine going and all the gears and cogs turning, then we get to a point where the organization is simply a monument to itself or a monument to the machine. And that is a danger in churches perhaps more than anywhere else. And as a church that is coming up not too long from now, on a hundred-year anniversary, we have to be on guard against that sort of thing. Mission drift or, or just going through the motions and losing sight not only of the original movement, but of the man, Jesus Christ, who founded it, upon whom this whole thing is built. And here we see... In chapter 13 of the book of Acts, as we begin this third and final section, moving beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea and Samaria, heading out to the ends of the earth, that those who begin this missionary movement are rooted in this man, Jesus Christ. It's a movement that's moving with the force of a machine. Yes, they're organizing congregations as they go. As this continues, Paul's going to have people setting aside, laying hands on uh, overseers and deacons. But their eyes were not set. Their aim wasn't, we're going to open 120 new locations by end of fiscal year. They didn't say, oh, no, no, we have to make sure that we increase by 150% every quarter. No, their eyes were set instead on Jesus. They're breaking new ground because Jesus said to. And they're obedient. And they're being led now by the Holy Spirit to do just that. Part of what we see uh, in this new section is that Paul is called by a different name. He's been called Saul all this time. And no, he didn't change his name from Saul to Paul when he was converted. He had both names continually. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul, Paulos, that's his, his uh, Roman name. And so while he was in the church in Jerusalem and amongst the synagogues primarily, before they started this missionary thrust, he's called Saul. He calls himself Saul. That's how he's known. But now he begins to be called Paul. And we also see another change, that he comes to prominence. And even at the beginning of this passage, it's Barnabas and Saul. By the end of this passage, it's Paul and his companions. 
And so this is going to set the tone for the rest of the book of Acts. This scene begins here in Antioch. And we saw in chapter 11 the, the background of this church, the origin started by Jewish missionaries who decided to come in and, and not just speak to the Hebrews, but also to the Gentiles. And now the church is largely Gentile in makeup. We've seen that they are uh, people who study the scriptures, who learn, who follow closely. They were first called Christians at Antioch. And this church is young, and it's being hugely blessed by God and used by God, and they are on fire for Jesus. And that's a buzzword that we don't really come across in the scripture. It never says, you know, you're reading the King James, and it says, and Peter that hath been on fire for Jesus. But I think it's a good one. You know, and I do think it's biblical. We read in Revelation 3, as Jesus is, is giving a message to the church in Laodicea that was lukewarm. He says, if you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I'd rather you were hot or cold. Maybe the better way to say it would be that we're, that we're hot for Jesus, but that definitely doesn't sound right. So on fire it is. And so here we are watching a church bursting out burning out into the world, to the edge of the world, spreading like wildfire. And we are excited as we read the beginning, this launch day of what will become the missionary arm of the church. We find them together worshiping. That's what you do when you're on fire for Jesus. You gather together and you worship. I'll tell you what, whenever the Nepali get together, birthday party, whatever it is, there's worship. Somebody's got a guitar. Somebody's got a tambourine. They sing. When they say, hey, we're getting together at this house or here, pastor, can you be there? You only need to speak for about 15 minutes. Oh, okay. It's this afternoon? All right. Worship happens extemporaneously. It happens planned. It happens continually. Worship is the state of the church when we are on fire for Jesus. They're also fasting and praying. And this is a church we've been told and we've seen already. They are a witnessing church. They are a giving church. And here we find that they are a sending church. They're not just all about them. We saw that when there was a, a prophet who said, there's going to come a great famine in the land. And he told them that the church in Jerusalem was going to suffer. And so these largely Gentile Christians again said, we are going to put together an offering aid for the church in Jerusalem and send it to them. That's what they're returning from there in verse 25. They're giving people, but now we find not only do they have great concern for those in the church, they have great concern for the lost. Those who not only are outside of the church, but may even be hostile to it. They want to see people come to Jesus. And again, that is required if you're going to think of yourself in any sense as on fire for him. Because this was the mission, the commission he gave. Go into all nations making disciples. Go and make disciples of all peoples. T teaching them to obey and baptizing them. Preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, as Luke puts it. And up to this point, the spread of the gospel had been kind of accidental for the most part. Right? What would happen is people were driven away from areas of persecution and went out further and further. As they went, they brought the gospel with them. But now it becomes intentional. Having been called by God to bring the gospel to every corner of the Roman world. And we find these leaders gathered together 
And we're told that they are comprised of prophets and teachers. They are people who want to know God and make him known. They study, they pray, they fast. They're men devoted to the word. They're not picked because they've been around the longest, like they have seniority. Even though the word elder is going to come up, the requirements for elders are spiritual. They're not chosen because they're charming and they exude success and they'll look good on the church website. No, they're committed to God's word. They're committed to to exhorting and they're gifted for it. And together they're devoted to listening to the spirit. This reminds me of the 12 when they said, we have too much on our plate. We're, We're taking care of all of these different ministries. We're getting people coming to us with complaints and it's starting to pull us away from the ministry of the word and prayer. Those two things we find absolutely prized amongst the leaders in Antioch. They had all this in common, but this is practically all they had in common, these five leaders. There's a great diversity here, and yet unity of purpose. Here's the list. We've got Barnabas. We've met him. We know Barnabas, right? He's he's a Jew from the Jewish priestly class. He's a Levite. He is a Greek speaker and probably more in touch with Greek culture than Hebraic culture. We have Simon called Niger. Niger is Latin for black. He is from North Africa. And so now we have racial diversity within the church. It's been suggested perhaps this is Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross when he no longer could. I don't think we can say that you know, we're sure of that or even that it's quite likely, but it's possible. At any rate, we have now also Lucius. This is a Latin name, not a Greek name, which probably means he was raised in Roman culture. We've got cultural diversity. Could very well be a Gentile. He's from Libya, also in North Africa. And then we've got an older guy, Manahem. He's part of the upper crust, the upper echelon of society, to the point where we find out he was raised with Herod. The Herod he was raised with is not the guy with the worms from last week, but rather that guy, worm guy's uncle. Herod Antipas, the one who had John beheaded, the one who actually had Jesus before him and ordered that he be mocked and laughed at him and had him beaten. This guy had the ear of, he knew Herod Antipas. So we've got all sorts of different people. And of course, there's Saul. We know Saul, he's a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a big shot trained under Gamaliel, the rabbi. And if you saw these five together, you would have no idea what was going on. Someone said, what's going on there at that table? You'd say, I am really lost. Search me. Because to the casual observer, they have nothing in common, especially in the world where Jews and Greeks did not fraternize, where the powerful and rich just despised the poor, where the educated looked down on common people. But among these five, what holds them together dwarfs those things that pull them apart. What they have in common is infinitely greater than their differences. And what's more, these leaders aren't just about defending their little church and making it grow. They're kingdom-minded. They're not about defending their authority and power within the church. It started with Barnabas. He went down to Antioch. He said, I need help. And he went and found Paul, brought him back from Tarsus. Now we find there's five. It's growing. We find that they're going to, as they go, they're bringing John Mark, a young man, with him, an up-and-coming guy who shows some promise from ministry leadership. It's not going to work out exactly how they want, but that's a whole other thing. We see that there's no danger of this becoming a monument rather than a movement 
Because they are looking forward. They're not saying, let's protect what we have now. They're saying, how do we continue to grow? How do we continue to bring the gospel out to more people, to raise up more leaders, to plant more churches? To make, in essence, if we wanted to think in these terms, more competition for ourselves. But it's not competition. Because there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We're reminded by the confession that the church, quote, has been given by Christ the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world. Been given and trusted by God with those things. The oracles, the ordinances, and the ministry to help people discover their gifts and help them cultivate them and give them opportunities to exercise them so that just like exercising muscles, they grow stronger and they're able to do more. To, to come together and ask each other, how are you doing? How is your soul? Are you struggling today? To ask each other, what is God accomplishing through you with the gifts that he has given to you? And if he's not accomplishing anything, how can I help you to submit your gifts to him so that you will bring glory to his name? To challenge each other and encourage each other. On a day like this, when we have kind of uh, attendance, I might want to bring up that passage in Hebrews that says, do not cease to meet together, as has become the habit of some. But if you keep reading there, it tells us why we meet together. And a major part of that is to spur one another on to good works. And they were doing that here. They were spurring each other on. They wanted to see the fire spread. And fires do spread, and it was spreading, but not fast enough. They wanted to throw a little gas on the fire. And that's what this is all about. It's also been said that there are three different types of people. There are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen. And those who wonder what happened. Right? Sadly, the church is often in the second and the third category. We watch things happen and grumble about them. And what we watch is often the culture kind of crumbling. And we watch the morals dipping ever lower, always descending, never hitting bottom. We watch the church losing influence and and shrinking in size, and then we wonder what happened. Well, they wanted to get out ahead of that in Antioch. They wanted to make things happen, or rather they wanted God to use them to make things happen, to the glory of God. And so they began fasting and praying. Apparently they had a sense that they were on the cusp of the next section of the book of Acts, or at least the next chapter of the history of the church. That something big was coming and they were seeking God's direction for this new phase. And what was going on here when we read in the beginning of Acts chapter 13 is not a management team meeting or a visioning task force or whatever consumerist stuff we talk about in the church these days. No, they're they're gathering together in prayer. It was about 25 years ago that the church jumped on the like mission statement, vision statement bandwagon when the world told everybody from Dunkin' Donuts to IBM to you know, Bed Bath & Beyond that you have to have a mission statement that says what you're about and a vision statement that says your goals. And we all said, oh yeah, us too. And the world has since realized that's kind of useless, but the church hangs on as we tend to well after an idea has come and gone. And if a church has a vision statement or a mission statement, I'm not judging them. But what I am suggesting is that when we try to emulate the world, we often come to the point where the world's favorite terms 
and ideas and structures become central to the church. I've been to so many of these uh, seminars and conferences where church growth or, or church leadership experts get up and use way more corporate lingo than biblical language. I remember when I first started hearing in the church about uh, vision casting or casting vision, and I remember thinking, this sounds like it might be like Pentecostal or something. There's a little something sort of mystical about it. No, I come to find out it comes from the world of business development and corporate strategizing and, and branding. And of course, churches thought this might be a way to kind of get back from the machine and the, the monument back to the movement and the man. But actually, it seems to often have the opposite effect. As we try so desperately to make Scripture seem relevant and actually drain it of its supernatural power and turn it into literally the most boring thing in the world. If you challenged me, take something exciting and make it dull, I could come up with no better way than to sort of squeeze it into the world of a Dilbert cartoon with boardrooms and mission statements and, and brainstorming sessions and, and profit and loss statements. I've been in that world. And there's nothing wrong with working in that world and good stuff happens in that world. And if you work in that world, I'm certainly not trying to make you feel bad about what you do for a living. What I'm saying is the church is something else. That while those things might be used well and to good ends, they aren't about to make someone take up their cross and give everything up to follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. We see power here. This setting is not a planning retreat with a bunch of flip charts and whiteboards and, and some brainstorming visionary writing on glass with a grease pencil, like in the movies. I don't, by the way, understand that. I mean, it's harder to read, right, than if you just write on a chalkboard or something. But no, this is the result of seeking God's will. And this is what it should look like in our churches as well. And I confess, on behalf of the elder board, we don't do enough of this. That too often we come together and pray at the beginning, and it's often me giving the prayer. And we say, well, we got to pray, of course, because it's church stuff. And the prayer is, Lord, help us get through this stuff quick. Efficient, so that we can be on our way. And it's certainly not despite my saying, guys, we have to be more spiritual. No, no, just about everybody's put in a full day's work. And this meeting, which often has to do with just boring, everyday pedantic things like boilers and permits and elevator inspections, it's the only thing standing between us and like putting up our feet and wiggling our toes in our argyle socks. And so what do we do? We, we say, well, let's pray real quick. And I think what we need to do more of is what we've done just a handful of times in the in the almost 14 years I've been here, which is we need to take more opportunities to say, you know, this is something big that we're discussing. Let's stop and pray about it for a while. Let's pray together. Or maybe let's take a few days. What if it's, what if it's really big and we say, what if we fasted and prayed? I wonder how often that happens anywhere in any church in America today. And yet that's what we find the church doing when the movement is exploding. We need to remember that this isn't just business meetings. This is something supernatural. Before calling the 12 disciples, Jesus spent the entire night in prayer. But, I mean, he didn't quite have the connection to God that we have, so we don't need to do such things. We need to lead by following 
We lead by following Jesus and following him closely. To, to be part of his mission. Because while the mission statement stuff is, is relatively recent, the mission itself is ancient. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to join me on my mission already in progress. And, and to do so by being in prayer. To be, to be in the word. To be in the spirit. The church sent them out here. But notice it also says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Shows us how rooted in the will of God they were, how fervently they sought His face, that the church could send them, and at the same time the Spirit is sending. Because the Spirit guides us and leads us. And we pray for wisdom, yes, but we hope that the Spirit will give us direction, that the Spirit will... And, 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 you know, often where the Spirit is talked about the most and given the most lip service is where He's most misunderstood. Where, where the Holy Spirit is talked about as a, a kind of force, a power source we can plug into, and whatever we want to do then, it's supercharged. D.L. Moody said that he had been a church member for seven years before he realized the Holy Spirit was actually a person. The third person of the Trinity was, was personal. Not just some kind of Star Wars sort of thing. Those who want to use the Spirit for their own means find themselves in the company of men like Simon Magus, who said, oh, oh, yeah, I want in on that. How about I buy some of that? And Peter said, may your silver perish with you. The Spirit is not a force that we tap into. It's not a tool that we use. The Spirit is a person who uses us. God the Holy Spirit. This reminds me of a, a tape that I used to have. It was a, a cassette tape. Everyone remember those? Alex, you know what they are though, right? <laughs> I had a, a Batman comic book that came with a little tape. It was the origin of Batman. And I listened to that tape over and over and over again while I read the comic with it. I was probably about 11 years old, about Calvin's age. And one day I left it in the car and the sun beat down on it. And it kind of did this. It, it, it started to curl and I looked at it, and it wouldn't fit. I tried to shove it into my tape player. I thought, oh, no. And I got this great idea. I take this other tape. I open it up with the mini screwdrivers. I take out the cassette, the, the, the actual magnetic tape. Then I, then I do a transplant, like a surgeon. So I start trying to do this, and it was a mess. And when my dad got home, he said, why are you so sad, Zach? And I explained it to him. He said, oh, well, why, why didn't you ask me to help? Maybe we could have done this together. And I thought to myself, but if I had asked him to help, he would have done it, and I would have helped a little bit. But you know what? It would have gotten done, and I would have had my Batman tape. Instead, here I am with it's coming out all over the place, and I keep reformulating my plan, and I'm like, what if I try this? I've got pencils going, spinning the thing, and, I've, and all the screws aren't quite fitting in. There's extra metal pieces. So often this happens in the church. We say, you know what? I... I want to be in control. And if I say, Holy Spirit, come and, and lead us, then I give up control because I'm going to be the one who's helping at this point. Not that there's never a time for what we might call strategic planning in the church. Paul was continually looking for opportunities to preach the gospel. He talks about open doors to the gospel. 
They're not always at every turn told directly by the Holy Spirit, go here. Sometimes they're kept from going to Asia or called over to Macedonia. Here, they say, where should we go? I don't know. I've been ministering in my hometown, Tarsus, for a couple of years. We could go back there. Oh, what about my hometown? It's on that island, Cyprus. All right, let's go there. We're not told how they decided. It seems they just used wisdom and prayed that God would bless them and give them success. We can make our plans as a church leadership, as an individual, as a congregation, we can make our plans, but we must recognize that we have to submit them. And I don't mean fill out a form and submit them. I mean put them under the leadership of God. As Jesus even said, not my will, but yours. Or as we read in Proverbs 16, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And even when they knew what they were supposed to do, They kind of had the answer. Okay, this is how we start out this missionary movement. Even when they knew that they were definitely on the right track, they continued to fast and pray because they knew they were absolutely dependent on God to carry out that plan. I told you way back at the beginning of this study of Acts that it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's been suggested that it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because, yeah, there are apostles doing all sorts of things, but they are not the agents doing them. They are simply the instruments that God is using to carry out his plan. Think about some of these things that happened and how it would have looked if the Holy Spirit weren't involved. Pentecost, when 3,000 people were saved and baptized and added to their number. What if Peter had gotten up, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come? And Peter had started preaching like old Peter. First of all, most of these people wouldn't have heard him in their language, wouldn't have caught their attention. Secondly, even those who understood what he was saying would have just rolled their eyes and continued on their way. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who draws us. And so the Holy Spirit had to be present and active. And it is the same thing in our church, in every church. We can do all we want and make our plans, but the Lord establishes our steps. And if the Spirit is not involved, even if there might be some initial uh, success at the beginning and things might grow, it won't ultimately bring glory to God. And it won't be success that matters. So the Spirit sent them, but then we hear in verse 9 that Paul, full of the Spirit, says this. So the Spirit sent them, but the Spirit goes with them. And the same is true of us as well. The Spirit goes with us where we go. And so we can boldly do the same sort of things we see here in this passage. The church laid on hands. They showed their missionary zeal in sending them. They went off to Cyprus. And there they had success. We have one of the first stories here. This proconsul Sergius Paulus, which is a legit name. I really like that. He is a Roman official in charge of the entire province. He answers only to the Senate. This is a major opportunity because he says that I want you to come tell me about Jesus. You could not ask for a better opportunity, but with this major opportunity comes major opposition. We read about another man, Bar-Jesus. He's a sorcerer, an astrologer, and he's kind of the spiritual advisor to Sergius Paulus. And he comes in, he tries to throw a wrench in the works. He tries to mess things up, but we find that these missionaries aren't discouraged by it. They're emboldened by it. If we're faithfully following Jesus, one thing we know for sure is that we will meet opposition. He told us we would. Like we read last week, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. 
Why? Because the reason all men would speak well of you is that you are not proclaiming the truth faithfully. They're not about to pussyfoot around with this kind of an enemy of the gospel. Someone had asked for evangelism, and it's one of these very influential people. Jesus had said, you will stand before uh, kings and governors and, and all of these people, and it's happening now, but there's a snake in the grass. Ready to say, did God really say? Today, I think we feel the same pressure. We say, I want to share the gospel, but I don't want to come off obnoxious because there's all these stereotypes about Christians that we're narrow-minded and stuff. And so sometimes I tone it down. I I want to make sure that I don't come off too strong. And and so maybe I I say, well, yeah, there are other ideas. And this book over here that you're reading by Deepak Chopra probably has some wisdom in it. And, And this thing that you're getting over here probably has, rather than saying, no, there's one way. And that is Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father but by Him. Can you imagine Moses saying of Pharaoh's magicians, oh, they're, they're okay too. I mean, yeah, listen, Pharaoh, just live your truth, okay? Follow your hearts, whatever you need to do. Uh, be true to yourself, find your path, and, and maybe if you can, in the midst of all that, sort of let my people go, that'd be good too. No, boldly, let my people go. And he humiliates their magicians by showing the power of his God. And that's similar to what Paul and Barnabas do here as well. God has not given us a spirit of fear, St. Paul will later tell us, but of boldness and of a sound mind. And I think so often the way we water down the gospel is reactionary and it is motivated by fear. Not by boldness, not by the Spirit. If fear is in control, if fear is at the wheel, the Spirit is not. This is spiritual warfare, is what we're dealing with. He says to him, you are making crooked the ways of God. Remember when John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, he said, make straight his path. Prepare the way of the Lord. We can't allow crooked paths to come into the gospel, because if we water down the gospel, it's about as effective as when you water down or weaken a virus. Now, that can be effective. It's called a vaccine, but it doesn't give you the virus. It inoculates you. And a watered-down gospel will inoculate people to the power of the true gospel. To say, here, well, you know, follow Jesus. He'll make you a better person, happier. He'll make you more fulfilled. Okay, that doesn't pan out. There's still trials. There's still suffering. I'm still here with all of my sins and all of my stuff. And the next time someone says, Jesus is the answer, I say, no, I tried that already. I've been inoculated. So they call this man what he is, a false prophet. His name means son of Jesus. But Paul says, you're fooling nobody. You're a son of the devil. Vintage Paul. Barnabas wasn't about to say that. He's the son of encouragement. He was probably going to be like, I like your fedora, but not so much your doctrine. But Paul comes right at him with, you are a son of the devil and an enemy of the truth. They proclaim the gospel with boldness because it's a bold message. And because you can't water it down and bring someone to the foot of the cross. There needs to be a crisis point for someone to come to faith. And sometimes if you've tried to share the gospel and you felt like you were kind of powerless in the moment and you weren't even communicating, maybe it's because you were trying to be too subtle. 
There needs to be a crisis point where someone says, I have no option but this guy dying on a cross because I see my need. This is how Jesus ministered. This is how the apostles minister. That that in, in taking up a cross and following Jesus to Calvary, you can't enter into that lightly and you can't invite someone into that lightly. Jesus says, count the cost. And look how often Jesus took the law. He said, look, here's the truth. And he held it up to people and showed them falsehood. And then they said, wow, I really need the truth. He said, here's the gospel. You cannot find your way to heaven, earn your way to heaven, climb your way to heaven. But heaven has come down. Jesus came and died for your sins and bore your guilt and punishment. Repent and believe. And our eyes are opened. Opposite of what happens here with bar Jesus. His eyes are closed. Remember Jesus said, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? A mist and darkness came around him. And his, he was rendered blind. And, and of course, as an astrologer, he needed to be able to see the stars and where they were and all this stuff. We're told here he can't even see the sun for a time. Why is it that these men were able to just go out and do so simply what seems so difficult to us? Even though they were in the midst of persecution and the stakes couldn't have possibly been higher. And there were people after them. Everywhere they went, more people wanted them dead and they keep on carrying it out. I think the difference is that they saw the world the way Jesus saw the world. In John 4, 35, Jesus says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. When you looked out and the fields looked white, that meant there was harvest ready to go. And it was abundant. And you needed to get on it. I think today we often say, "Mm, it's not quite the right time. It's not quite ripe. Yeah, bananas are all green. Or, oh, now it's too late now. Everything's rotten. Forget it. God can't even save this. Let's just pray he comes back soon and burns the whole thing down. No, the world is ripe for harvest. The harvest is plenty. The, The laborers are few. And so we need to send laborers and be laborers in the harvest fields. Perhaps some of us think, well, if I could do miracles like Paul and Barnabas are doing here, striking people blind and doing, you know, anytime someone challenges me, I just do a miracle, I could win a lot of people to Christ as well. But remember what Jesus said in the teaching on Lazarus and the rich man. He said, yeah, I know that you want to come back from the grave and warn your brothers and tell them what awaits them after their death, but it wouldn't do any good. They have the scriptures Moses and the prophets, if they won't believe them, even if a man is raised from the dead, they won't believe. And it wasn't the miracle that converted the proconsul. It was the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. People often think, "Ah, if we had miracles and all these, these things we see in Acts, the miracle could move us from monument back to movement. No, the way to get away from the monument, the way to protect against becoming the mausoleum, is to continually return every Lord's Day, every day, every morning to the man who started it all, Jesus Christ. To say to him, don't let us become dedicated to the machine. Don't let us become just about turning the cogs and all the gears and making sure the thing just keeps on running. Lord, fill us with passion and a desire to go out and win the lost. Fill us with a burden for the people who live all around us who don't know Jesus. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to want to fast and pray. 
Give us the heart that every time we gather together, we got to worship at least a little bit. Lord, give us the kind of passion that sent these men out into the world. Keep us focused on the man and the movement he began, lest we become a monument. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example we see here. At the beginning, it's always easy at the beginning to maintain excitement. Lord, we pray nearly a century in that we could maintain a passion for your kingdom. We pray that where we have grown cold, you would reignite us, that we would, we would be on fire for you. We pray that we would not be a machine on its way to a monument, but a movement dedicated to you, the one man, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and man, the one who died and rose again, the one who sent us out to win the world to his glory. Amen.